subject is designed to help us consider and perhaps to find peace in a world where peace is particularly elusive. And we want to show that God does have a plan of peace for the world and that he has a plan of peace for you and for me. And we want to really look through three areas this evening. And um, it's the first one that, uh, you know, is going to occupy a fair chunk of our time. Um, and um, we'll move then on to what the Bible says as we look at God's plan for peace in the world. And then we'll very quickly at the end focus on how that is relevant to, to you and me. And the funny thing is, in terms of the elusive search for peace, is that it's actually an ancient quest. It's, it's not something that we've been chasing just in recent times. For example, we know that the Romans had a god of peace who was called Pax. It's actually where we get the, the modern derivation or the source of the word peace. And she was based on a Greek god called Irene who preceded her. And funnily enough, this God became something that was worshipped at the time of the biblical Caesar, the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was it was something that the Emperor Caesar Augustus absolutely loved. He was very much into the worship of this deity and he was so taken with the idea of this false God that, that when he minted his coins, he put his head on one side and then he put her statue on the other, as you can see there. And he didn't stop with that. He, he started building monuments to peace as well, including this altar that you can see here, which is called Pax Augusta, dedicated it in 9 BC. And while we know that the, the Romans had um, incredible soldiers, they had fabulous strategy, they had the very latest weapons, this, this concept of peace was actually something most Caesar's craved because if you could get it, if you could get peace, it meant stability. And that meant that you might be around for a bit longer. One notorious Caesar, Vespasian, began work on the Temple of Pax. Uh, he, he built that in Rome in AD 75, just after the sacking of Jerusalem, and, and there's an image of it, and by all accounts, it was quite a remarkable structure. That remains in Rome today. So there was an entire temple dedicated to the idea of peace within the Roman Empire. And in fact, the Caesars established a great period of peace. We know that it was called Pax Romana and lasted about 200 years. Now, we have to say it was only a relative time of peace because it is always relative as far as the world's concerned. You always get um, skirmishes on borders, etc. But generally, it was a time of peace as the Roman Empire ruled with um, absolute control across the Mediterranean Sea and beyond. You know, with absolute control, they ruled an iron fist. And we know that the great so-called Christian Emperor Constantine the Great was the one who, by Christianizing Rome, brought another form of peace as he merged pagan and uh, thinking with Roman uh, with with Christian thinking. And that brought a new form of peace. But this wasn't a peace that was negotiated or coaxed. It was foisted on his people to get rid of the divisions between pagan and the Catholic systems. And that lasted for some time, but, but nothing lasts forever. 
and when we think about the, the Middle Ages, in, in France, for example, during something called the Council of Bourges in, in 1038, the Archbishop decreed that every boy aged 15 years and upwards should join the Dias Militia. So that meant on the one hand, they were receiving penance, as you can see in that image. But on the other hand, they're preparing for war at the same time. And, and this is, I'm afraid, the whole sad catalogue of human history. A sad catalogue that sadly shows us that when people talk about peace, they are at the same time preparing for war. And, and so the Western concept of holy war was born where people thought it was the Christian thing to do, to go and rescue their fellow Christians who they believed were suffering at the hands of the Turks in the land of Israel, to provide sustenance for the Christians battling the Muslims in Spain. They felt it was their Christian godly duty. So you see the problem that we have is that peace and war are very close bedfellows. Now, as we move much closer to our time, not long before the outbreak of World War II, the, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain landed at Heston Aerodrome. He'd been off to see Herr Hitler. And, and he came back, and we, we know, I'm sure, those of us that are a little bit older will, will recall these words. He said, my good friends, for the second time in our history, a British Prime Minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honour. I believe it is peace for our time. Go home and get a nice quiet sleep. And what he was actually doing was quoting from another famous prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, who had concluded 60 years earlier that the world was in for a time of peace. And that was said before the world entered the great meat grinder that was World War I. And Mr. Chamberlain was the same. He believed it was peace for our time in, in, in the moments before World War II began. And he told our nation to go home for a lovely sleep. And the papers the next day were quite celebratory that they believed that peace for our time was exactly what they had and that this would last for some time. But history judged Neville Chamberlain particularly badly because just 11 months later, World War II broke out and the world was subjected to another great atrocity as Hitler and his troops marched across Europe almost unhindered. But it doesn't stop there. As we get even closer to our time, we see that there is the repeating of this phrase about peace. The 2009 Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to this man, the President Barack Obama, and he served, as we know, for more than one term. And as his second term began, he said this at the inaugural address. And here's that phrase again, peace in our time. Peace in our time requires constant advance of those principles that our common creed describes. Tolerance opportunity, human dignity and justice. Now they're very noble words, aren't they? Those are the sorts of words that the press loves. It's something that people can hear and aspire to. So we spoke peace. 
But as we know, he prepared for war. And the world slips into conflict so easily. You'll remember that George W. Bush was renowned for being a bit of a bloodthirsty president. And he was involved in those four wars there, Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Somalia. Which begs the question how the Nobel Prize for Peace was ever awarded to Barack Obama. It's a complete mystery because he's actually been involved in another three wars over and above those first four. Do you see that it's not within man to be able to speak about peace and not deliver war? It just happens because war by some other means is spoken of as peace. It's peace through war in many people's thinking. Well, why would peace be so elusive? Why should it be that the very greatest minds, the most powerful military, the best thinkers in the world cannot find a path to peace? Surely it's something that, that, that lives in the heart of every human being and that we actually all want some form of peace. You know, on a personal level, personally, we want some peace. Why can't that desire on a personal level be extracted and mirrored and applied at national and international level? Well, there's an interesting comment that I found from Secretary of State who served under Eisenhower. His name was John Foster, John Foster Dulles. He's an airport in America named after him. But this is what he said. The world will never have lasting peace so long as we reserve for war the finest human qualities, and he meant the best minds, the best thinking, the best resources. And then he said this, he said, peace, no less than war, requires idealism, self-sacrifice, and a righteous and dynamic faith. Now that's interesting, because he's a man who actually believed in righteousness and faith. He needed that those things, though he, he, he said that those things were needed to establish lasting peace. But again, his problems or his tragedies are a man, as a man, was that he was one of the key architects of the principles of the Cold War. It's that ironic. This man who speaks these very sensible principles then went and wrote the Cold War policy for the United States. So do you see the points echoed again? The world speaks peace, but it prepares for war. And it's big business, isn't it? You know how big it is. You look at what the nation spent on defense in 2019. The US spends so much, but it takes the next 15 nations combined to match them. So the world says, peace, 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 but they prepare for war. And they think that by preparing for war, you can guarantee peace. Now, there are global peace movements today who try to get the various parties with differences to talk to one another. And people are looking for peace in some places. But it remains elusive. And I suggest that the, the real reason for that is very much deeper than what we have on the surface. And that deeper reason, I suggest, is given to us in the Bible. So would you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57 and let's have a look at, at what it says. 
Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 19. A little way into the verse, it says, Peace, peace to him that is far off, and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. So this is interesting, isn't it? God is a declarer of peace. And the peace in the Bible doesn't just mean cessation of war. But the principle of peace in the Bible is about unity and joining together in the right principles. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Muslims use the word salam, peace, they say, when they greet each other. So peace is about joining together. And God wants to do that. Uh, and you see here, it, it, it's a principle of healing, isn't it? He says in verse 20 of this chapter, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And that as a principle is something that we really need to think about. Because when there is no peace in the earth, the Bible is saying that the reason, the root cause of that is wickedness. When there is no peace, it's because of wickedness. Strife and trouble and wickedness are truly at the root of all international peace efforts, or more specifically, the failure of them. But one of the key themes in the Bible is that peace is associated with righteousness. It forms the basis of the constitution of the coming king of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just come back in the Bible to Psalm 85 with me, please, because we'll see that here that the peace and righteousness must be joined together. Psalm 85. And look at verse 8. It says... Psalm 85, verse 8, I will hear what God, the Lord, will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They've, they've joined together. So what God is saying is that you can't have peace without righteousness it's a fundamental principle of the entire bible we want peace but naturally we also want to do our own thing and that is what is at the root of all international conflict so where does this trouble come from well in the new testament a man called james asked that very question and he was working with the believers of Christ in the first century AD, the, the, the early believers in Jesus in the Ecclesia. And these members were at war with each other. And, and there's no difference between a, a war that happens between those who call each other brothers and sisters and international war. It's just a matter of scale and the weapons that are being used. So when James comes and asks these questions, they, they apply just as much to personal situations of conflict as it does to wars between nations. So just come and have a look at, at James chapter 4. I'll put it on the screen for you if, you, if you're having trouble finding it. James chapter 4, and look at what he says. From whence come wars and fightings among you? 
Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. So, so for example, we might have a nation that has a great wealth of, of oil resources. For example, that's the case in the Spratly Islands in, in the South China Sea. And for that reason, the Philippines and the Chinese and the other countries nearby are, are after those islands. They want the resources. They have lusts. They want that because it gives them power. James says, why do you not have? Because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss. Why? Well, because you want to spend it on your pleasures. You've got it all wrong, says James. It's about your desires. It's what you want. That's the basis of why wars start internationally. And in fact, if, if you think this is just a biblical principle, that it's not, that the US author and thinker Napoleon Hill had this to say, war grows out of the need of individuals to gain advantage at the expense of his fellow man. Isn't that true? You just think about any of the wars that we know about to know that's the case. Just think about the Falklands War back in the 80s, where this country and Argentina fought over a tiny bit of land. It had no economic value. It was entirely a war based on principle. Because Britain wanted advantage over another. And the Apostle James continues with some more interesting words, and he's, he's dealing with this problem from other perspectives. If you're in James, just, just come back a page to chapter 3 and, and have a look at verse 11. He says, Does the fountain send forth, send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the, figure, can, the, can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either vine, figs? So can no mountain both yield salt water and fresh. Verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And the context to that is that you can't speak peace, but then prepare for war. You can't speak both sides of the coin at the same time. You can't be Caesar Augustus on one side and the goddess Pax on the other, like we saw on that coin at the beginning. All that the world stands for, everything that constitutes its thinking and its desires, its lusts, are diametrically opposed to everything that God stands for. And which the Bible proposes. You can't have a foot in both camps and straddle the divide between God and the world. And as James says here in verse 11, a fountain is either bitter or it's sweet. It either produces one fruit or nothing. And all of this poses a question to us, and that is, what source of person are we? And in this, we're given this um, wonderful clue that the cause of all peace is going to devolve in what happens in your life and in my life. So to start with, God wants to bring peace to the world. Moving now to the second part of our 
our lecture. The current world is absolutely ravaged with wars and skirmishes and fighting. And just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean it still isn't happening every day. It is. Just look at America in the last few days. And because it happens so frequently, we're almost blind to it, aren't we? We read it on the news, we, we read it on our tablets and our computers. Almost daily, somewhere in the world, we hear about war-related atrocities and deaths and bombings and fightings. And we just shake it off because that's how the world is. But it isn't normal. A, a generation ago, things like this had people wringing their hands and unable to sleep. And it's not going to be allowed to continue because God has said and promised that it's going to change. And one of the ways he shows how it's going to change was given through an Old Testament prophet, a man named Isaiah. And if you want to turn to chapter three of Isaiah, you can. They're, they're, they're very famous words that we're going to put on the screen now. And he presents a beautiful, almost picture perfect world, a world that's too incredible to believe. And, you know, Isaiah chapter two left an indelible mark on Karl Marx when he finished his thinking. That even when he left Judaism, this principle stuck with him. This is an ideal that he strove for. Isaiah chapter 2 says this, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days. So it shall come to pass, it says, not might happen. It will happen in the last days. These are the days mentioned to us in the New Testament by Jesus Christ. They are the times after wars and tribulations. After those days, it says, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountain and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Not some nations, all nations shall flow into it. So this isn't Middle East peace only. It is global peace. Verse three, and many people shall go and say, come ye, and let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Lord and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So very clearly, it's their choice. It's voluntary. They want to do it. The end of verse four says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And you see, they cannot prepare for war under the auspices of wanting peace. War and peace are not actually good bedfellows. So how can this happen? We don't see it today, do we? We've never seen it on the earth. Well, it can only happen when the most righteous king who's ever ruled is in place. The king of God's providing. He's the one who brings a law and a rule like nothing we've ever seen. And the funny thing is that the world sings about this, don't they? You, you know the words on the screen. You know, they're taken from that wonderful music by Handel. He took the words from the Bible and he wrote the Messiah in 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 1741 didn't he and if the history is if the history is right he did so in just 24 days it's quite outstanding 
But you know the words, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So did you see that? The Principality of Peace will belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And, and all of that is possible because he was the only man to ever rule his spirit perfectly. He can be all the things that verse 6 and 7 says because he alienated all the things of this world from himself. He didn't try to solve world peace by becoming like the world and preparing for war, even though he had countless angels at his disposal. He didn't straddle that divide. He set himself up as far into God's camp as a person can get. And because of that, he truly is the victor. He is the Prince of Peace. As a consequence of this, he has a government which is just the endless rolling of peace. And there's no end to it. And, and it's going to come to this earth and it's going to stand. And we have to be ready for it. But I suppose the key point of our lecture is that we want this peace for ourselves and within us so that we can live a little better in this troubled world. But we start with a problem. And that problem is that all of us, pretty much, I would imagine, are Gentiles, non-Jews. And this morning, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, and we need to go there again, because the Apostle Paul says there was a problem with being a non-Jew. And this is what he says, Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 11 and 12, he says that you were naturally Gentiles, he's saying there in verse 11. Verse 12, and at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the whole world. No hope in the whole world, no peace anywhere. So how is that changed? Well, verse 13 of the chapter says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Jesus has broken down the wall of separation because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is our peace. Verse 14 of Ephesians 2 says, he is our peace. He's made one, both Jew and Gentile, and he's joined them together as his people. And he's broken down that wall of separation. And that wall of separation is where that red line is between the court of the Gentiles and the temple. That's what he's interested in. And that's what he's done for you and me. He broke it down spiritually so that Jew and Gentile could be one. And how did he do it? Well, if we continue to read in verse 15, it says he abolished in his flesh the enmity. It means the hostility or the warring, that there's a natural war within us, within our own mind and thinking against the principles of God. But in Christ, he's broken down the difference between Jew and Gentile. He stopped the war. We are naturally at war with ourselves and the things of God. But Christ has brought peace to us by breaking down that wall, that, 
separation of hostility between our natural minds and the thinking of God. Paul says in verse 15, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, adjoining together. That was the principle of scriptural peace. Do you remember? Joining together. And it goes on to say in verse 16 that he might reconcile them both unto God in one body through the stake, thereby putting to death the enmity or the hostility. In other words, my dear friends, Jesus is the end of hostility. That is why he is the Prince of Peace. And because that is what he is, this gives you and me the opportunity to build our lives on the strongest foundation we can find on earth because it doesn't come from this world it comes from the lord jesus christ and paul continues in ephesians 2 he says at verse 17 and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Je Jesus has, has brought all things together, both Jew and Gentile. Verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What Paul is saying is that here's the very basis of the the very basis of the peace is founded in Christ as that cornerstone of the building against which everything is measured and levelled and the foundation of the apostles and their preaching as well as the prophets. You can't have a, a more sure foundation for, 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 to, to believe something than this. That's the basis of our faith and it's the basis on which you and I are invited to change our lives. It's the basis a personal and internal peace and it comes from being associated with the Prince of Peace. So if that's the case then, where does this search for peace really begin? Well Psalm 119 says this in verse 165, it says, Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Lord, I have hope for thy salvation and on thy commandments. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. So do you see the logic there? Great peace can only come to the people of the Prince of Peace. You have to be in Christ, in the Prince of Peace, and loving his principles if you want to be associated with him. This requires a substantial change for you and for me and that's not an easy thing this substantial change is something we need to work on and fight with every day that we're alive and we can only do it through the blessings of the word and the lord jesus christ in romans chapter 8 we read these words apostle paul says this he says to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Isn't that wonderful? There's no maybe there, it's quite clear. If you think like the world, then you will die. 
That's the first half of the verse. If you think with your mind on spiritual things, then it's life and peace. The second half. And we might think that that's all for the future. But when we are truly in Christ and we follow his principles, we're promised, we're promised life in the future. And I think we're promised peace now. This is what comes from actually changing our thinking, from being what the world thinks about to being what God and Christ thinks about. And you see, the thing is, the Lord Jesus knew it wouldn't be easy. Each one of us who make that decision to be baptised then have to battle with this every single day. But Jesus understood this. Would you come with me to, to John, Gospel of John and chapter 14 for a moment? Because Jesus offered some words of encouragement to his disciples. And it's very poignant when we think about the words that he gives, but it's more poignant to think about when he gave them. Because he gave them as he was about to go through his greatest trial in Gethsemane. And then, as we know, he was to be crucified. And yet, as he gives these words, he's thinking about them. The Prince of Peace wanted them to have peace. John chapter 14 and look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. You can't earn it. It's a gift from Christ. And it's not as the world gives that I give to you, he says. Do we really look to the world for peace? And do we really expect we're going to get it? Jesus says, it only comes from him. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. It's a very, a very simple message. Don't worry, is what he says. There will be turmoil, but he says, don't worry. Verse 28, ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, ye would rejoice because I said, I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And that verse means that you and I can have access to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who happens to be at the right hand of God? Who is better than than God to give us peace? Peace through Christ. And a couple of chapters later, in in John chapter sixteen, the page on actually, John chapter sixteen and verse um, thirty three, he says, "These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace." You know, as we've said already this morning, we have to be in him. We have to be baptised for that to be the case. And if we are baptised, then we need to remain in him. In the world, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, he says. I have overcome the world. In other words, don't worry. I've overcome the whole world. Don't worry. Because I am your Prince of Peace. So the result of believing then is what we read about in Philippians and chapter four. And I'll put it on the screen. For you. Philippians four says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation, let your gentleness be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. 
and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We will be preserved if we're with him. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things that you've learned, both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Not might be with you. It's will be with you. This is the path to true personal peace, my friends. And we're invited to follow the principle of the Prince of Peace. To find that path. So, in conclusion. We know that Neville Chamberlain told the people of this country that there was going to be a wonderful peace. But war still broke out. But you know that the answer from the Bible is so, so much better. And the answer to the Bible to having a good rest is what we read in Psalm 4 right at the beginning. This is what it says in verse 6. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Verse 8, and look at this to counter the words of Neville Chamberlain. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Question is, can we truly make this our own internal peace? If we can, he will be our Prince of Peace too. Let's try and be like him and let's put into practice what he's told us.